Welcome to Sonic's Flight, the podcast devoted to all things Sonics. Sonic's Flight is a monthly podcast discussing current events, news, and topics of interest to the Sonics community. We aim to entertain and educate builders and pilots of Sonics aircraft designs, inspiring them to complete and operate their aircraft safely and efficiently. Welcome to the Sonics Flight Podcast. This is episode number 62. Swapping engines on a flying airplane. So every pilot wants more power in their airplane, or they want a different engine, or they want to try out the new latest and greatest thing. And when you're building and you've got that choice in front of you, you tend to go down one path. But when you have a flying airplane, that's a whole different set of challenges to pull off that engine and put on a new one. So over the years, a number of pilots have made this decision, and increasingly as Flying airplanes are finding their way into second and third owners. We're seeing more and more of this engine swap mentality. So we'll cover some considerations to keep in mind when you're considering pulling off one engine and putting on a new one on that already flying airplane. My name is Jeff Schultz, builder and pilot of Sonic 604 and Sonic's 1374. Joining me once again are my two gun flying buddies, John Gillis and Gary Motley. John is best known for his many YX customizations, and he's currently... Just about, I don't know, John, uh, are, are we almost to the wrapping up stage on your conversion from your YX to your B-Model YX? You know, I'm, I'm, I'm at the 95, 95 point now. I was at 90, 90. Um, the wiring harnesses are all finished. The cowl is done. The wings have been rigged. Um, I just kind of got to button everything back together again and make sure that I do a full annual to make sure I got all the cotter parts. Right, so you in. said the cowl was done, and um, I guess uh, it's been a few weeks since we got an update. That process seemed to go pretty quick then, huh? You know, it, it started really quick, and then uh, the, the little bits and fiddly things of trying to get it to, to get around the prop you know, I thought it was really doing well. I got the, the cowl all mounted and stuff on the engine without the prop on, put the prop on it, and suddenly things don't fit as good around the prop. So been fiddling with that, got it finally done. Um, and, uh, yeah, it's it's definitely a better process than the old Sonics process, but it's still a lot of, lot of work. And did you have to make modifications to it, or was it more just uh, sanding a little bit here and a little bit there? Sand and okay. trimming, sand and trimming. Yep. You know okay. how it goes. But uh, I assume that you're using just the standard B-model cowling. Uh, any problems with that? Nope. Gone back to the standard or the standard stock cowl. Um, actually pulled my old uh, plenums um, before I had the speed cowl out of the, out of the rack, and they work beautifully. So they're going to fit right up to the... Uh, the stock cowl again so I'm, I'm going back with the old plenums like the, uh, the box, uh that came the from sonics system. for the jabber yeah okay the box baffles yeah hmm. well cool so let me see um you said you're ready to kind of do a super annual and make sure it's all going back together is that really everything that's left you're, you're that far along that's pretty much it yeah i should you know, I don't say I should be flying the next month um, because I'm getting really distracted because I got a uh, really good glider flight in. And now I'm 
I'm focused on soaring again. Uh, but, uh, you know, by Christmas, I think my plane will be, uh, I'll, I'll start doing the phase, uh, phase one flight testing again. All right. Good deal. Good deal. And also here, Gary Motley. Gary is a longtime pilot. He's a former CFI and a multi-time airplane builder. Gary, how are you doing? I'm doing well, buddy. Doing well. Hope everything's going yeah, well with well, you out there in Kansas. There. Still hot, though. Well, it's been hot everywhere. Uh, yeah, you just can't get away from it around the Midwest, though. Except in Texas. I'm sure it's not hot in Texas. Nah, not at, not at all. Well, maybe. <laughs> did you did you get any flying in? Well, I got about four hours this past weekend. I took two uh, people up for their first flights in a small airplane. One was my neighbor, and uh, another one was a co-worker of my wife. And both of them seemed to have a thoroughly good time. So that, that's always a positive thing to just start spreading the addiction of aviation, isn't it? Yeah, that um, I that's one of my favorite things is you know, whether it's a young eagle flight or it's just uh, somebody who's never flown in a Sonics that hangs around the airport or like you say a coworker or a friend of a coworker, um, taking somebody new who doesn't yeah. have any experience in a small light airplane or any airplane uh, is a great thing. It's uh, one of the best things you can do with your plane. All right, well. For this episode, we've got a couple of old faces that are coming back to help us out again, and that's Robbie Culver and Mike Singleton. So, Robbie Culver is coming. Robbie, are you on the road, or are you calling in from Chicago again? I'm calling in from the home in Chicagoland. All right. Robbie, what have you been up to recently? Well, I had a great weekend flying. Um, I've been helping a local 1X builder who goes by the nickname of Stork, and he needs time in a Sonics model for insurance. So I think we're up over five hours now, uh, going up, taking him up, let him get stick time, learn the sight picture. So we've been flying quite a bit. And I've also, on Monday, we had a airport barbecue. And I was fortunate enough to get almost four hours in taking people for their rides, including a couple people for their first Sonics ride. And uh, so I've been having a blast with the airplane. So, Robbie, um, did this other guy, Stork, did he know about the transition training syllabus or did he just reach out and, and you contacted him? So a little bit of both, Jeff. Um, I think he also had heard through the grapevine, you know, your idea of trying to get stick time and. I think he had seen the transition training syllabus, but of course, in a 1X, that's kind of impossible. Um, but he reached out to me. I think pretty much it was through Bill Larson, uh, who's also down in Peoria, not too far away. Uh, he's he's also been trying to fly with Bill, but I don't think the timing has worked out. Mm -hmm. Okay. And uh, I would be interested to hear, when he goes back to his insurance, how they are viewing his experience. Uh, you can't really call it transition training, but you can certainly call it familiarization, and he can log PIC time in your airplane from the right seat. Yep, and that's all we're doing. He's logging PIC time. I'm not a flight instructor. This is not flight training. Um, as you and I both know, we can't do that. So he is logging stick time, and he is required by his insurance company to have, I believe, it's 10 hours of time in, in type or similar, and this qualifies. We've verified that. Yeah. Well, good. Yeah, that's um, I, I, we're just going to have to keep recommending, uh, you know, people when they when they have a problem getting transition training in the exact type of Sonics that they're buying, that they just need to think big and get creative and 
make a new friend, uh, travel someplace and get a few hours over a long weekend, do whatever you have to. But if you negotiate with your insurance agent and you come to him with a plan that sounds reasonably well thought out, uh, my experience has been the insurance agents are willing to at least work with you. So this is, I guess, one more data point that suggests that it is, in fact, a viable approach to get the time you need for your insurance. Yeah, and it's been a lot of fun for me getting to introduce somebody who's just finishing up a project into a plane pretty similar to what they're going to be flying. I think he's got a UL power engine, if I remember correctly. Oh, good. That's going to be uh, a very fun combo, I think. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I believe so, especially in a 1X. Yeah. Well, cool. Well, congrats on that, and uh, good work. And then uh, to round out the team here, talking engine swap, is Mike Singleton. Mike is, uh, oh, geez, Mike, you're probably one of the best people when we're talking about different engine combinations and it's and uh, tri-gear, tail-dragger, uh, dual-stick, single-stick, 1X, YX, Sonics. You've got a little bit of everything in your logbook. Yeah, that's, that's, that's correct. Not too much uh, YX and, and not too much 1X, but uh, uh, quite a bit of, of different Sonics for sure. Yeah. Well, good. And... Really, um, I guess the thing that, that makes Mike Singleton and, and Robbie Culver really uh, a really good value to this particular episode is that both of those guys have airplanes that started with an AeroV engine. They flew it for a period of time, and then for reasons of their own, which we'll talk about later, uh, for reasons decided to remove that AeroV and put on other engines. In, in your guys' case, you went from AeroV to Jabru, the Jabru 3300, and that's essentially what I did on my first Sonics as well. So we've got uh, we've got three people here that have done the AeroV to Jabru swap. Now this is a little bit different. It's not a Sonics project. We've also got Gary who had one engine on his most recent project that uh, he removed and put on a second engine. So he's got the same sort of approach through a slightly different lens. So uh, anyway, Robbie, Mike, thanks for. Uh, carving out a few minutes to, to go through this topic. Yeah, happy to do it. Glad to be here. Okay, well, having kind of set the stage, um, I guess maybe what I want to start with is I kind of want to make the case for, you know, why someone might consider removing one engine and putting on another one. Now, right off the bat, you know, there, there's a number of reasons and, and some very personal and some we see kind of recurring. But maybe we'll just start with some just some uh, some vignette stories. So, Mike, why don't you tell us kind of, you know, what was going on with your airplane that uh, that kind of prompted you to make this switch? Well, I had been uh, fighting a little bit with uh, oil leaks on my AeroV, and uh, uh, plus I'd flown, you know, quite a few airplanes with the uh, uh, Jabiru 3300, and I'd been thinking about upgrading, but just never could bite the bullet and do it. Uh, but I did a top overhaul on my uh, AeroV, and I screwed up something and and uh, uh, spun out a bearing on it uh, a few flights after I got got it all back together. So um, I just started looking around for a used Jabiru and uh, had a few that I was talking to people about. And then my wife said, I'd feel a whole lot better if you just bought a new one. So, you know, with that kind of arm twisting, that's what I did. Mm-hmm. And uh, haven't looked back since. I really, really enjoy the extra power. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. And uh, and Robbie, I don't want to 
I don't want to necessarily go down a, a rabbit hole, <laughs> but um, what was your thinking, uh, you know, in, in removing your ROV and, and going with a different engine? Well, so I had a uh, oil pressure loss while I was flying in June 2018, ended up in a far- old farm strip fortuitously. It was a runway and nobody landed there in 20 years, but I did. So when I landed, um, we had been thinking seriously about switching over to a Jabiru 3300 because, like Mike said, I wanted more power. And when I landed, the first thing I did, of course, was call my wife. And the second thing out of her mouth, the first one wasn't polite. The second thing was, uh, well, I think you can get the Jabiru 3300. So much like Mike, I was fortuitous. She wanted me to get a brand new one. So that started that process. Hmm. Yeah. Okay. And then in, in my case, I flew my original engine, my original Aero V4, a couple of years, a couple hundred hours. And um, I was taking I was taking my kids flying with me. I was taking coworkers. And uh, I was starting to kind of come to terms with sort of the, the, the performance envelope of the Aero V. So like I said before, the Aero V is a pretty good match for a person who doesn't really take a lot of passengers. Uh, you want to take an occasional person up on a ride. Maybe you want to do a Young Eagles flight here or there. But most of the time, you're flying by yourself. And the ROV is going to give you, you know, good performance within that performance realm. But if you find yourself constantly taking another person, especially with, you know, another full-size adult, um, you're very quickly going to come to the conclusion that on a hot day in the summer in Missouri, uh, <laughs> you're just, you're going to run out of performance. You're not going to have the climb and and just the margin that you really want. So you're going to find yourself looking for more power. And that's kind of where I found myself. Uh, after a couple of years, I thought, yeah, it's running good, but uh, I'm ready for more power. So I'm going to start looking for that that good deal on a used uh, Jabiru. So that's what I did. And swapping to the Jabiru was really just to expand the envelope and kind of get that, that no-worry performance that I was looking for. Uh, Jeff, you know, uh, when I had my AeroV, I was never really disappointed with the performance. Even- even being down here in Texas and close to the coast where it's humid uh, and hot, uh, I never had any, any real uh, disappointment with the performance. I gave just a ton of rides over over the nine years that I had the Aero V in there. And, uh, yeah, there was there were days that I wouldn't get much better than a 150 or 152 might. But uh, uh, still, you know, you get up to cruise and, and, and get some speed up, and it handled fairly well. Uh, so I, I, that was never the big thing. I, I think what I wanted more power for was one, I got tired of Robert Barber always outrunning me. And, uh, two, I, uh, uh, when I was yanking and banking, I, I liked the idea of having a little more, uh, reserve on the energy so that it didn't bleed off quite so quickly when I started putting G's on the plane. But as far as performance of the ROV, I was, I was never really disappointed with it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and, you know, Robert Barber runs his airplane on straight-up moonshine, and so uh, you needed all the help you could get. <laughs> You're right there. <laughs> okay, and then, uh, you know, Gary, you flew your airplane. You flew Hound Dog for I don't know how many years with your ROV. Um, although it's not an apples-to-apples comparison, uh, thinking about your, you know, your recent project um, – what kind of goes through your mind when you're thinking about replacing your engine, you know, one with the other? Well, let's preface it first. Yeah, I had the Aero-V in my Sonics for six years and over 600 hours. And uh, up here in Colorado, again, it was a performance-related issue. I mean, 
I originally had dual sticks as we talked about before, but I found that I really was not, I was not able to uh, carry a, a second person and have any type of adequate reserves on power at these density altitudes. So I took those sticks out and just put a single and just called it a big, a big Bubba 1X. Uh, but again, I agree, Mike. I think if you're if you're anywhere near sea level or 3,000, 4,000 feet density altitude, and uh, you're you're primarily 99% solo, the RV is a real good bang for the buck. It'll give a good modest amount of performance to it and do just about everything that you need to do. Uh, my latest project, however, though, I tried an, an automotive conversion engine project uh, that really I, I just did not have all the bugs out of it, and I was too much of an alpha tester. As we've discussed before, the thing seized on me in flight and had to put it down. Kind of bent a little bit of metal, and so, of course, that engine was toast anyway. And so it wasn't a matter of rebuilding it. It was just, a bit, my my opinion, was just a piece of scrap at that point. So then I seriously had to look around for another engine. Um, you know, at that point, I wanted to get back into something that was more uh, more traditional, uh, more, more aircraft-specific. Uh, at that point, I'd had enough that I really didn't want to spend a lot of extra time uh, trying to develop more firewall forward packages and and solve a lot of the bugs that, as we know, we can get into when we start looking at engine conversions, uh, especially if we're doing something that hasn't really been tried and true. Um, going from an Aero-V to a Jabru, uh, I think will be a relatively no-brainer. I'm, I'm sure you guys will discuss all the options with that, uh, but it's been out there for a considerable period of time. And there was a large wealth of database and knowledge out there to try to accomplish this task with less headaches. Um, so, you know, I, I went back and I, I started to go around and asking people that had experience in, in the three big type of engines that were going at the time. You know, we have the Gorilla Rotax, which is everywhere in the world these days. So I spoke with people about those. We talked about some conventional engines, you know, like Continental and so forth, the Dinosaur or, or Legacy engines. Um, and most all of those were still kind of getting back to carburetors at the time. And at this point, I was kind of just, you know, I really wanted something that was just pretty much turn the key and go. And that kind of brings us to the newest generation of engines, which are FADEC engines, uh, basically fuel-injected, full-authority digital electronic control units, or ECU-driven engines. Um, that really narrows the list down. Uh, and that's how I ended up with my current engine. It was actually one that I had seen many years ago at Oshkosh. I, I love the way it was looked. I like the idea of how it was, how it was machined and produced. Uh, it looked like a very simplistic but robust engine, easy to service and easy to, easy to maintain, which is another thing that you need to kind of look at engines. It's not only your, your initial upfront costs, uh, but what are going to be your maintenance costs and issues related with that. And as we deal with some of the legacy engines, uh, those are really, really pretty pricey, as you know. Even just to change one cylinder can be a couple of thousand dollars. And so you kind of have to kind of weigh all these things around and, and really start talking to a lot of people, uh, getting the feel back and you know, doing your best, as we all try to do, to determine what's really going to best fit our, niche, our mission. But uh, that was my thought process when I went through and looking for a second engine. Yeah, okay. Well, as I kind of just think about, you know, the, the reasons the reasons why you might want to consider upgrading, you know, we, we kind of hit on all of them right here. Uh, the first one, you know, more power. I have a performance in mind and, um, and I need more power to get it. So I need to put a bigger engine to get that. That's probably the number one reason. Um, secondly, replacing a failed engine, you know, obviously you're going to have to do something, either rebuild the old engine, put on a similar engine that you can just kind of swap onto the mount 
Um, or you take the opportunity to upgrade to a bigger engine, different style engine, whatever. But, you know, you're, you're instigated by that failed engine. And then the last one is you just want a different engine. And, and really, I, I kind of think you want it for one of two reasons. You know, you want to move away from a, a more unique or experimental engine, such as the case of your auto conversion that, that failed, um, back to a, a more well-defined, fully developed engine. Um, or you're kind of going the opposite way and you're saying, I want to go from maybe this older technology engine to something that gives me some new high-tech benefits, fuel injection, computer controlled, whatever. Um, something like that, or maybe a, a more unique type of design. So those are kind of the things I think that, that go through the majority of people's minds. You know, those are the, the big reasons. But equally so, I think that there are some reasons that I'm going to call bad reasons why people might, you know, kind of go down this road of, uh, of doing an engine swap. And, and probably the first one that comes to my mind is they listen to all the bad information that's floating around on the internet or, you know, people are bad mouthing this particular engine. And it doesn't even matter, you know, what, what engine we're talking about because you just pick an engine at random and there's going to be a, a core of people who are critics and they're going to bad mouth and they're not necessarily going to be fair about it, but that's the kind of stuff that you hear. And so when you're just listening to everybody complaining and sometimes out of context and uh, it kind of undermines your confidence in it, and you start thinking, oh, geez, I got to get rid of that thing, and I got to put something else on. What what other things come to mind uh, as as far as bad reasons why we w- would advise people? You know, that's maybe not be the best reason to to start a project like this. Well, it's kind of going again back to a similar thing. What I experienced trying to go for quote the uh, the newest and latest and and most trendy fad. Um, we we've heard a. A comment that's been attributed to John Monette a long time ago, uh, not necessarily wanting to be on the bleeding edge of technology. Um, and I think that I think it's you know the more I do this, the longer I'm in it, uh, the more apropos that kind of comment really is. Uh, if you look for something that's new just because it looks shiny and pretty, um, it can cost you a lot and a lot of many in a lot of different terms uh, if you're not careful or if you're just just simply not lucky. Sometimes it's not just not in star alignment. Yeah, Gary, we, you know, we all love to walk down the aisles at Oshkosh and see the new latest and greatest and, you know, interesting options that, you know, are, are just new to the market, but don't have any fleet hours. So, you know, this past year we saw uh, Morotorov, we saw D-Motor, and there's a few other engines that are out there that have outstanding potential, but they have no track record. And so there's... I think there's a little bit of a lot of us that says, "Hey, that that has tremendous potential, and I, I'd really like to take advantage of that." I think maybe I'm gonna I'm gonna get that engine. I'm gonna try it out because if it if it pans out, it's gonna be awesome. I'm gonna have this great airplane. But sometimes, you know, that may be uh, getting a little bit of wishful thinking, clouding your judgment because there's a whole host of problems on a new and untried engine, and uh, especially when you have a flying airplane and you want to put on that, you know, that other new experimental engine, you kind of got to go into that with your eyes open. That may be exactly what you want, but you need to not underestimate, you know, why you're doing it and the effort involved in, in crafting a new installation. Yeah, I knew my first choice was risk. You know, I kind of considered it 50-50. I'm not usually much of a gambler, and those are those are pretty terrible odds for me, but I went ahead and bit the bullet. Uh, but yeah, you need to know what your comfort level is, and you, you kind of need to think sometimes if you're going for something new and experimental, 
um, like some of the other engines that you mentioned, uh, you may just be simply just writing a, a blank check that you'll never recoup any uh, any money or even any or any significant flight time on. So it's it can be a real gamble and an expensive one. Yeah. Now this doesn't really apply to Sonics, but I see it all the time in other applications. You know, rotary engines like a Mazda rotary. You know, there are people that have successfully put rotaries in their projects, and um, they probably put the time and effort into them to craft a, a very reliable, powerful solution. But there's a whole bunch of other people who kind of, you know, they, they, they get into this project maybe ill-advisedly. They don't have the skill set or the patience or determination to do it. And the promise of that rotary engine is never realized, not anywhere close to it. And it never flies. It sucks down years and years. They could be working on something else. Or it flies badly and they get soured on it and they sell it for, you know, next to nothing. So, yeah, you got to be careful, I think, about chasing that bigger, better engine, especially if you don't have the skills necessarily to tackle each of those problems that you're going to have to tackle. Yeah, to understand what your personal perseverance level is. Yep. Yeah, and if you, like you were saying, if you have a flying airplane uh, and there's a, a new one out there that you're just enamored with, why not keep flying yours and watch that one for a while? You know, give it a year or two even if, if you're not just totally disappointed with, with what you have now. Because, you know, there's no sense hurrying that kind of a change. And for me, uh, one of the other interesting little tidbits here was I had been considering an engine swap before my incident. Um, and I had done my homework, done my shopping, and I had called someone with a lot of uh, hands-on first experience firewall forward with another conversion. And that person actually told me, well, for your airplane, you should pick a Jabiru. So for me personally, um, I went down that path of, you know, maybe this, maybe that, maybe over here and kept coming back to the Jabiru. Mm -hmm. So, Robbie, this is a good time for me just to kind of throw out the thinking on on my second Sonics. Uh, I was really, really close to buying a UL power engine for my Sonics. And I've been following them. They were getting slowly more engines were being delivered and being flown on customer airplanes, not on Sonics yet, but on other airplanes. And they were starting to build fleet hours. And I was at the point where I needed an engine. But I would have been, to my knowledge, I would have been the first Sonics owner to to get an engine and put it on. Like at that point, we didn't even know whether it would actually fit on the Jabiru mounting pattern. The the spec said it would, but nobody had actually tried. So you didn't know if there was a going to be an interference on something. And, and I was really, really close to just going ahead and buying the engine and doing all the R&D and development myself. And I had to just kind of pause a little bit. I thought as, as attractive as that UL pit engine is, it has all these things that I really, really want um, performance-wise and all that. I don't know that I really want to devote all that time to being the first one and to figuring out what are the teething problems that this engine may still have, not just in a Sonics, but just in general. And so I decided, you know what, I'm just, I'm not going to go down that road. I'm going to buy a Jabiru. I'm going to, I'm going to have a, an outlined roadmap to follow. It's going to be successful and I can do that. I'll be flying in no time. And that's really important to me. I want to fly. I don't want to spend another year or more developing a custom package. And so I bought a Jabiru and I installed it and I've been flying and I've been happy ever since. Now, fast forward five or six years, Gary, you're in that boat looking for an engine and you're thinking, what do you think about UL power engines? Well, that's a completely different story. We got four, five, six more years of fleet hours and data and refinement. And at that point, it was 
much, much more well understood and, and frankly, a whole lot less effort for you. You get the installation kit, you get all the, everything's already kind of worked out. You buy it, you bolt it on, and it works just flawlessly, more or less. It was a great firewall forward package. You're right. It was, it was relatively uh, painless. I won't say bloodless, but you know, that's just <laughs> the way it is when you work on an airplane, but it was relatively painless. Uh, and it's been, uh, you know, a, a happy transition. Uh, I, so far, I'm very, very pleased with the engine. We've had a couple of minor issues with it, of course, as you do with almost all engines. Um, but, you know, that brings me to a second point that I, we haven't yet hit on, uh, but I've mentioned it time and time over again, is customer service. Uh, I have to say the customer service has been stellar um, in, in resolving problems, identifying problems, and disseminating the information. And I think that when you're looking at, uh, you know, an expensive engine, yeah, that's a, that's a serious point to consider. Yeah, and this is something that you really need to talk to others to get a sense of what their customer service is like. Having a chat at the booth at Oshkosh, you're going to get the polished uh, showman smile and the and the sales pitch. And not that that's bad, but that's just one aspect of it. You got to talk to actual customers to get a sense of how responsive are they to emails, what's their turnaround time, are they going to honor warranty claims, things like that. And you need to kind of pull the field and get a sense of that before you put your money down. Yep. Okay, well, the last two things that come to mind as, as far as, you know, reasons not to do this is, one, you have an engine that has some minor problems, and, you know, you can fix those minor problems and, and get your engine up and flying again. And maybe that's the right thing to do. Maybe you just fix the minor problems, and then you drive on and continue flying. Um, that that may not be the case in every situation, but you ought to at least consider that before you rule that out. Fix your current engine, return it to service, and then continue on. So a case of, you know, like an Aero-V, if you have, you know, um, some bad compression values and you start thinking, oh, geez, I'm having problems. Well, maybe it's a simple case of you need to rebuild the heads or just replace the heads. And you do that, and for a relatively modest amount of money, your engine is back in service and you continue flying. You ought to at least consider that before you get too far down the path of uh, I'm going to yank it off and, and put something different in. And then the last thing that comes to my mind is um, you're just you're thinking of an engine that really is not appropriate for the design. So in a Sonics, you know, those are a lot of your your bigger, heavier conventional engines. So without getting into the argument about, you know, what what Sonics approves and doesn't approve, Every airplane, and the Sonics is no different, is going to have a, a, a weight that it can accommodate. And if you get too far outside of, of what the factory recommends, you're going to have challenges that are going to add to the complexity of your project. And if you have a particular engine in mind, and it doesn't really fit within that accepted range, um, you probably need to be honest about your ability to, to, to pull that project off before you get too far into it. And I've heard this. I've heard this in other cases where they say, "Well, how come I can't put a, um, uh, I don't know what it is, an O two forty or something like that on it?" Well, if you want to put that engine in an airplane, maybe the Sonics is not your airframe. Maybe you need to look at something that's a little bigger and can accommodate that. And if you're just really, really sold on that engine, maybe this is not a good match, and you should look elsewhere. And for me, that's one thing that I constantly have to beat off some of the old dogs at the airport about: is, "Well, why haven't you got an O two hundred in it?" Well, <laughs> well, you know, and I'll say I don't 
haven't heard of any successful O200 installations. I know there's a couple out there. They've done it, but they don't seem to be very popular. So is it too heavy on the nose and they end up becoming hanger queens? Yeah, and uh, John Monette has talked about this. Um, you know, you start adding in all these gadgets that you just can't live without, and pretty soon your two-place sport airplane turns into a single-place uh, cruiser that you just don't really want to take it out and, and enjoy it. And it, you're right, it becomes less valuable to you, and it no longer fills the mission that you intended. So that's something that can happen, you know, even to the most well-intentioned of us, and we just have to guard against it in the choices we make. Well, I think we also have to guard against uh, thinking that we know better than the hundreds or thousands that have gone before us. Um, thinking, oh, my God, that that engine I saw at Oshkosh will be perfect in my Sonics, and I'll be the first one, and it'll be so successful. Well, okay, great. Lead on, but uh, we're, we'll watch carefully behind. That was one of the big reasons for me. I did not want to be first. Yeah, and so you went and bought a Jabiru, which is a proven platform. Um, I've always thought about, I have a Jabiru 3300, and if I have to re-engine for some reason, like Robert Barber had, I'll probably buy another Jabiru 3300, because I know it works. Yeah. Now, Gary, this, this may be a good time. How long did it take you, to after your engine failure, to uh, to re-engine it. Now, I know you had other work you had to do at the same time, so you get a little bit of overlap. But just to straight remove the one engine and put all the bits and pieces for the other engine, how long did that process take you? And how difficult was it? Um, well, I had to do some additional stuff. You know, of course, it was a different type of platform. Uh, I had to have an, a different type of fuel system with return lines. So I have a, a continuous flow fuel system. It doesn't blind in at the engine site. And so that was a minor problem to run a secondary fuel line back to my header tank. Um, you know, like like most of us somewhat do, and you know, we try to weigh these options carefully, is uh, even though the firewall forward packages was excellent, uh, I did not choose to mount my fuel pumps on the firewall. Uh, I decided to put them back in the back near my header tank where everything's nice and cool and very close to the fuel source. Uh, so that entailed a little bit of additional there. Um, you know, I had to get some lines made and, you know, do a few other little minor things, but uh, nothing major there. But, you know, I, I was actually pretty happy. I think my actual, by the time I actually had the engine in the crate, uh, to having it hung and, and, and actually turning and running was just right around five weeks time. Okay. Wow. So, so five weeks and... Just kind of from a subjective standpoint, did it seem like it was a pretty easy swap, or did it seem like there's a fair amount of little things that you got to run down and take care of? No, actually, I thought it, I, I I just thought it was very very simplistic. Uh, you know, I got rid of a lot of systems that I didn't like. You know, I didn't have to deal with radiators and cooling systems and and other things along those and gearboxes. Um, again, the, the little things that I had to do is. Uh, is, is mostly related to the fuel supply system, you know, with the fuel return, um, you know, relocating the pumps. Uh, the other thing I took into a point at that time, too, and this was this was just incidental. It wasn't something that I was required to do. Uh, but at the time, I had mounted uh, some dual EarthX batteries uh, on the cabin side of the firewall area. 
Uh, I had actually no real room on my firewall side with the Viking engine that I had in there, and uh, it was just going to be too tight. So once I had to pull that out and I put this uh, UL power on there, there was just a ton of space behind the engine of the firewall. So at that point, I went ahead and just relocated my uh, my batteries, my my contactor solenoids, you know, and, and did some upgraded and, and re re engineered some of the wiring schematics that went along with that. Uh, but that was just more for convenience and serviceability down the road uh, than what was really required for the moment to mount the engine. Um, so for me, it was just mostly you know dealing with the fuel line issues, and uh, and it was really really I, I think it was pretty much dirt simple to do yeah okay it took a little bit figure out a little bit of the electronics uh you know I had to wire you know more of a conventional uh, aircraft switch for the dual ignition systems and so that was a little bit different than what we had been using in our sonic systems yeah uh, but you know a few hours i got that thing figured out eventually too right well and the point i guess i was kind of thinking about was you had to modify the electrical system you had to change component layout you had to remove components off of the old engine that were no longer needed for the new one you had to add components that that were you had to change the fuel system with the return um in addition to just simply installing the engine the baffles the engine mount all that so there's a fair amount of things you got to just get your hands on now we know that you're a pretty meticulous and talented builder and so you didn't find that particularly hard but it still had to be done so by contrast, Mike, you know, how, how hard was it for Robert to put that new Gen 4 Jabiru in when he bought it? Oh, uh, with his, it was, it was a pretty straightforward, uh, swap out. I think he pretty much had it, uh, all back in, in, in a weekend and, uh, was flying it, you know, like on about the third day, if I, re- if I recall correctly. Right, right. And that's kind of the, you know, I just wanted to highlight the difference you know, everything just sort of worked and he just put the new engine in, hooked everything back up, minor changes here or there as needed, and away he goes. That's that's correct. You guys are making me jealous. <laughs> well, you, you have to remember that he was replacing a Jabiru 3300 with the Jabiru 3300. Yeah. It was a different different uh, uh, series, but uh, other than that, it was, it was basically the same uh, mounting. Yeah. Pretty much a plug and play. I mean, you're just replacing, a, you know, one one light bulb for the next. Yeah. yeah, pretty much. Okay, all right. So I think I think maybe that sets uh, sets down the reasons to do it, and maybe the reasons why you ought to think twice about actually swapping engines, and maybe just you know replace what you got with this, with like for like, you know, fix what you got, stay on the beaten path, don't get too far into the experimental realm, you know, things like that. Um, Jeff, hey Jeff, I want to toss in one more reason not to, and this was something I did not anticipate, because I was going from an, an Aero V to a Jabiru, I had to swap engine mounts, there's no plan pages for doing what I did, that was the part to me that caught me by surprise, so if somebody's considering this, you know, there needs to be a good reason to do it, because there's a significant amount of, you have to understand what you're doing from an outside the box and outside the plans pages perspective. And Robbie, that's a good point because especially as second and third owners get involved, they didn't have the initial experience of building the airplane. And so something that's simple like, oh, you're just going to pull this out and replace it with something similar, or you're going to take a new part and match drill it to your existing airframe. They don't have that skill set already kind of in their back pocket to be able to do that easily. And you got to be honest about what your capabilities are. And if you didn't build the airplane and you've never done anything like it, that may be a little bit tough for you to pull off. 
Yeah, and I'll add to that that for me, being intimately familiar with the airplane I built probably saved me from giving up because there was a couple times I got really discouraged and it was only because I'm A, very stubborn <laughs> and sometimes just don't know better and B, was able to kind of back out and go, okay, I built this thing. I can find my way out of this. And swapping the engine mounts was my biggest challenge in that regard just because there's not a plans page for it. I had to think my way through it. I had to get the correct drill bushings. I had to, I had to think these steps out before I did them. Um, I, that was the part that I, I guess I had not prepared myself for. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I was just going to say, as far as, as far as that went, the engine mount, I didn't find that to be too difficult. I, and I don't know, maybe I went about it different or, or I'm just not smart enough to see all the problems, but, uh, it was pretty straightforward for me. Um, there were other things though, you know, I had to, uh, move my battery box, uh, and uh, no matter what you do, you're going to have to uh, probably redrill landing gear. Okay. Well, let's let's get uh, to the specific things in just a second. I want to I want to oh, hit, okay. okay. hit the considerations real quick, just to make sure we again get everybody in the right frame of mind here. So th- there are there are four main considerations that come to my mind, and I just want to run down these real quick: um, time, cost, weight, and complexity. And so on time. Probably, you know, time is going to be hard to measure because, you know, on the one hand, you're going to have a builder, like we'll use Robert as a good example, where they have a real simple swap. They're pulling off, you know, an older Jabiru and putting on a newer Jabiru, and it's pretty much a a weekend project. And so that person says, oh, yeah, I did that. It was a piece of cake and uh, no problems. And then you have other builders that have all kinds of other things that are going on at the same time. And their experience was very different. It took months and months, and it was far more difficult than they thought. So trying to get your head wrapped around how long is this thing going to take to do, that can be a difficult thing to answer. Probably the only advice I can give is don't underestimate the time required, and make sure you just kind of prepare yourself for what could be a long slog. And, and Robbie, you mentioned, you know, being determined and not giving up, you know, what what did that turn out? I mean, what did you think it was going to be in time-wise, and, and how did it end up being? So I had planned on a year just because I'm, uh, I am by nature a pessimist or a realist. Depends on who you talk to. My wife says I'm a pessimist. I say I'm a realist. I gave it a year. It took me nine months almost to the day. But I will also add to that. When I built the airplane, it was in my garage, and I was steps away from it. When I was r- doing this project – I was a half an hour away from the airplane, and it was the busiest year of travel at my job. I travel a lot for work. It was extraordinarily difficult for me to get out there. I have a son who's a teenager. I had a lot going on. So I'm an extreme case. But it took it took nine, nine out of the 12 months that I allotted. But that's good because you did some thinking ahead of time, and you said, what, you know, what can I reasonably devote to the project? How's this going to play out? And then you did some expectation management so you didn't allow yourself to feel like you were failing and get discouraged and quit. No, and I, I knew when to spend a weekend thinking out there instead of, you know, screwing up. The one thing I learned, and I, I hope everybody that builds takes this to heart, and I'm, I know other people will say this. The one thing I learned building was you got to do one more thing. Oh, I got to get this thing done. It's the end of the day. I'm tired. I all but guarantee that'll be the one thing you screw up that you have to buy a new part. And I was determined not to do that. And guess what? I did it. So, <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's yeah. the, that's the worst thing. Um, you know, whether you're uh, one more run down the slopes or, uh, you know, yeah. one more quick little task, you know, always, you should never have just one last thing. You should always stop before you get to the one last thing. 
Yep. <laughs> okay, and then, uh, you know, cost me in the second one. Um, you know, it, it's pretty easy to open up the catalog and find the cost of the new engine that you're thinking about buying, but that's just a portion of the total cost. And all those accessories you're going to need to buy, and sometimes you got to really sit down and, and map out what all accessories do you need, what, what is included, what's on you to source yourself or, or to custom fabricate. And then you have a cost of maybe some of the rework of the airframe that you kind of have to back up a little bit so you can kind of get back to, to where you can install that new engine. Gary, um, how did that play out to, to yours? Uh, what did you see as far as, um, you know, things like that, that, you know, cost-wise accessories that didn't come with the engine that you kind of had to figure in? Yeah, in my particular case, again, because I didn't use the entire firewall forward package, you know, you would order some fittings that you think were going to work. You'd get them, uh, and you'd find out for whatever reason they just didn't simply work. I, I don't know what I ordered some AN fittings, and you know they didn't fit right. They didn't feel. They just tactically, tactfully did not feel right when I was threading them together. And uh, you know, you kind of scratch your head, but you know, you, you, they're supposed to fit. And you put them together, but by the time you get all that stuff to get together, and you finally, you know, fire up the fuel system and the pumps, and you start pressurizing everything. And then you start seeing the spewing going on from all those fittings that you questioned to begin with. So now you got to realize, okay, now I either have to get new fittings of the same brand or go for something entirely different. So now, of course, you break out, you know, the catalog and start placing the order. And, you know, you got to wait for those to come in. And and so that does eat up a significant amount of time. So even though if you have it, think you have it planned right, uh, you may basically get parts that just aren't going to work as well as you want to. And so you, you have to kind of go back over again and start from scratch. A lot of these things, you know, you don't even think about till you get your hands into it. You think, of course, I'm just going to use my existing throttle cable and I'm going to hook it up to my new carburetor, except the new carburetor is nowhere near the old carburetor. And so you need a new throttle cable. And the routing, you know, used to go right by your battery box, but now it can't go that way anymore. It's got to go someplace else and you got to relocate everything. And then, you know, you're going to need a new prop to go on your new engine, but you didn't think about the new prop bolts because they're a different length on on your new engine, you know. So it's just a whole a whole series of cascading things, and you really got to kind of think about that in advance. What are all those little bits and pieces I'm going to need to change as well? Well, I wish I were that smart, but I've never actually accomplished doing that. You know, I can get I can get maybe oh two thirds out of what I need right the first time. It's kind of like having to do a project around home and you know doing the proverbial six trips to Home Depot in one day. Uh, Gary, you made me feel better because I ordered so many parts doing this. And right after I was done at the swap aircraft, Spruce opened up a, a distribution warehouse in the Chicago area, and I about cried. <laughs> it's all the shipping. Oh, as you guys all know, the shipping just it, it makes me want to cry. I only oh. need four bolts. Oh. Like yeah, and it's $15 for shipping. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Two bucks for the yeah. parts, 15 for shipping. So, Jeff, for me, um, the other thing that I – just pounded my head against, and again, I'm not not as smart as some people. Um, the fuel system. So the, it was different carb. I went with the Bing just because it was there, um, and I went through four iterations of and a lot of tubing and a lot of AN fittings and a lot of walking away and kicking the rocks out on the ramp before I finally settled on something that ended up working quite well. Um, that was to me again no plans pages for doing this. I just had to work my way through it. Yeah, and that's a good point because, you know, the standard Jabiru installation is to take off the Bing and put on the AeroCarb. And so if you want to follow a roadmap, Sonic gives you a roadmap for an AeroCarb. 
But if you're not going to use that, you're going to use the Bing. You kind of got to reach out to what does the factory literature say? What do other builders use to that they have been successful? What do other airframers use to to do that kind of stuff? But more of the work is on you to kind of craft a semi custom solution. Yeah, and I was lucky. I found and I'd been in touch with a Sonics owner who has a Jabiru thirty three hundred. I think he's currently flying a Camet. But he has the Bing, and he answered a lot of questions for me. As a matter of fact, he helped me this weekend when I had to adjust my idols. So, yeah, that helped. Got to know the right person. Yeah, yeah. Well, and then um, these last two are kind of, you know, they, they're somewhat intertwined, um, you know, weight and complexity. Um, so typically you're going to be going with a a larger engine, you know, more power. You're going from Aero-V to a, to a Jabru, say, or something like that. Um, just don't. Don't fail to account for the difference in weight and center of gravity. And so you may have uh, hung some of those heavy accessories on the firewall because you're running that smaller, lighter engine and you kind of needed a little nose weight anyway. And uh, and now that's not the case. So make sure you just kind of just think that through. And if that engine that you're looking for is going to go on an already kind of heavy airframe and it's at the heavier end of the, the allowable range or possibly a little bit heavier than what is typically going in Sonics, you know, you may find yourself, you know, that plane getting heavier and heavier, or your CG getting further and further forward. I don't think many people have the opposite problem where they take off a heavy engine and put on a light one, and the CG goes out. I think it's probably more, you know, CG going forward. So for me, that Go ahead. Robbie, go ahead. So for me, that was interesting, Jeff, because I had a turbo ROV, and then I had a standard ROV, and then I went to the Jabiru. And when I went back and looked at the numbers, not the CG range, but the the weight, the turbo and the Jabiru, when I was done, were about seven pounds apart. Um, the Jabiru is a little heavier, but it wasn't as far as I thought. And that's really good advice because I, I tried to build light to begin with, and I don't know, I did okay. Um, I don't have the lightest or the heaviest Sonic, so I'm somewhere in the middle. And I tried deliberately to to keep that in mind because I was doing other stuff, as, as most people do when they do this. Um, I added a DSB. I added a different engine monitor. But I tried not to go crazy with that. And um, I wasn't as smart as Mike. I didn't move my battery box, which ended up almost biting me. So, I, you know, yeah, there's a lot of that stuff you go through. Again, no plans pages for it. You have to, you have to think this stuff out. And Gary, you were going to add something? Yeah. Well, actually, in my particular engine swap, I did go down significant weight, about 71 pounds. Uh, not so much of a of a real CG worry spot because of the, the different engine mount that came with the engine uh, to account for uh, for the lightweight engine. But yeah, it, it can go both ways, but it's, it's pretty unusual. I think the vast majority are you're going to go every time you change an engine, you're more likely to get a heavier one than a lighter one. Mm-hmm. Now, I guess that that wouldn't necessarily be the case, you know, um, down the road a few years, if if the Rotax 912 becomes a a more common accepted Sonics power plant, we could find that exact situation. People could be taking off an Aero V Turbo and putting on a Rotax 912 and you might lose, you know, 20 or 30 pounds. And, you know, so that that could be a, a situation that somebody has to face. I don't think we're quite at that point yet. But it's one of those things that, you know, you ought to just think about not just the all-up weight, but the distribution of weight and what that what is that going to do to your CG when you're doing it. And, Robbie, like you mentioned, 
uh, there's a natural tendency. You got the plane down to do work anyway, so I might as well do all those other things I wanted. I'll put all the extra gadgets in. I'll do the avionics upgrade. I'll add all these things while I have the new engine going in. It's okay. I got more power, so I should be okay. But by the time you're all said and done, you've increased the weight and possibly changed the CG significantly in the process of that upgrade. Yeah, and I I deliberately kept that in mind. I knew what I wanted to change, but I was I was doing my darndest not to go crazy with it. I, I had to have ADSB. I fly under the Chicago O'Hare Bravo in the mode C-Vale. That was a no-brainer and it's light. But I wanted to swatch in, swap engine monitors and weight was a key consideration there. Yeah, I don't think that there's any one-size-fits-all advice. You know, certainly the advice is not don't do it because that's just, that's that's short-sighted. The, the, the advice is simply to, before you undertake these types of projects, just make sure you think through all these implications and have a plan and make sure you understand if you're making a compromise, exactly what that compromise is so you don't find yourself at the end of the project looking back thinking, gee, I'm really disappointed with the way this turned out. And Jeff, I'd be more specific than that. And I've told this to a couple of other people with other airplanes that were talking about doing similar projects. I said, look, guys, you know, I'm going to be blunt with you. This is not for the faint of heart. You know, you're a builder at heart. I get it. But what you're doing, um, I can't tell you how close I came to punting into the curb a couple times just out of, I want to fly the thing. Um, I don't want to be working on it this much. But again, too stupid and too stubborn to quit. Um, I'm glad I didn't. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But not, not for the faint of heart. And then I guess the last point uh, is the possibly the increase in complexity. And so, uh, Gary, I think, um, you know, you might have a little different perspective because you're flying a more demanding engine than just a, a Jabiru, which is pretty simple, you know, honestly. But if you're putting on an engine that offers fuel injection, you know, ECU, uh, has a closed loop sort of return fuel system, it, it has pr- pumps, high pressure pumps, and, you know, potentially all these things that you're doing in the process of upgrading your engine are are going to be one more system that needs to operate properly. And if it, if if you add additional systems that have to function properly for the engine to keep running, you are potentially decreasing your your um, reliability if you don't have a bulletproof installation. So it's just something to think about. You know, where am I adding additional potential failure points, and how am I going to make sure that does not happen? Whether that's redundant. Uh, electrical system or it's a bulletproof fuel design or whatever the case may be yeah it's certainly something to take in consideration and and obviously i spent a lot of time thinking about this uh, i've looked at it again over and over again after some of our previous uh podcasts as well uh about electrical sources and, and potential problems and you know i've had some other people look at this too and uh yeah, those are the kind of things that you can't necessarily take for granted. You, you really, when, when you're changing from that type of system to something like the, you know the, the technologically advanced ones, uh, it can give you a moment of a pause. And there are times that you know you, you kind of wonder at once. But having done what I've done now and the experience I've gained, uh, again, I'm I'm really glad that I've done it. I have real good uh, confidence in the system that I've put together and the engine's capabilities. So. Don't be don't be saying you can't do it, but yeah, it's not it's worthwhile certainly seeking other opinions as well. Mm-hmm. And you talk about having the right person come by. Uh, I kind of had this one guy that that I've met, and 
uh, he actually builds rockets. So I, I call him my rocket scientist buddy. So, <laughs> you know, I have him come by and kick this thing every once in a while too, and take a look at something and, and suggest something. So that's been real helpful as well. Mm-hmm. And Jeff, for me, that was a key part of it. Cause I, I can always be accused of being negative Nelly. And I confess that sometimes I am. Um, I had such good luck with, the right people at the right time with the right advice to kind of keep me on track and my father-in-law to kind of kick me in the butt and uh you know you're not going to walk away from this now so yeah it's it it's another example of the home-built community kind of supporting each other yeah yeah okay well let's let's get into the specifics of uh pulling the pulling the engine off the sonics and and doing that so um first thing Preparation. So, you know, we, we talk about a lot of the preparation things, you know, gathering up the accessories and hardware that you can reasonably forecast you're going to need and maybe just getting a little stash of things that you might need, but you're not exactly sure so that you don't have to pay that, you know, that special shipping charge for those four bolts. But what are the, uh, I don't know, I'm just thinking specifically, what are things that you found that you probably should have gathered up at the beginning of the project to have on hand. Mike, does anything specifically come to mind in the prep phase? Uh, no, just the hardware was really the only only thing I did. And I'm, I have a bad habit of just jumping in and, you know, find it out uh, midway through what I need and then order it and have to wait on it. But uh, uh, so I did have to order a few extra pieces of hardware just to get it done. But for the most part, uh, you know, I, I really didn't do a whole lot of planning. I yanked the other engine off, put it on the floor, and and uh, then uh, started on the, the details of, of mounting the second one. But uh, as far as pre-planning, no, just, you know, try to try to order the hardware you need and hope that you get it right. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, one of the things that you know, you're likely to have to do is you're going to have to modify your cowling. And so that could be, you know, Fiberglass works, so have all your fiberglassing supplies and, and the tools you're going to need for fiberglass. And then your cowl fasteners themselves, you know, are likely going to change length as, as the fit changes just slightly. So you might need to have a stash of those different length fasteners and things like that. Now, a lot of that isn't necessarily going to stop you dead in your tracks, but at some point you're going to have, you know, you're going to have a work session cut short when you don't have, you know, your resin in place and things like that. Robbie, anything else as you kind of look back? On, on the prep phase that you, you say uh, it would have been helpful to gather this up before I started? Well, absolutely hardware. And I went through the same thing Mike did and the same thing Gary did. Um, hardware, hardware, hardware. Order extra. I mean, you're paying for the shipping anyways. Um, second thing for me was I did do the uh, horizontal cowling, so I ordered that early because there was a good lead time. No problem. Didn't hold me up. Um, and then the last one was the prop because I went with the Prince P-tip. Um, I ordered it early and that paid off because it came right about when I needed it. So uh, those are the three things that I thought I had on that paid off. I also went with larger tires, um, again, while I had it apart. Again, my, I was an extreme example. I had the airplane, you know, the wings were off. It was sitting up on chocks, uh, I'm sorry, on blocks. So I'm kind of the opposite end of the spectrum. It was already pulled apart. But, um, yeah, just, you got to think ahead about the stuff. Like, like Mike said, you know, if you don't, if you don't get the right hardware, you're going to end up waiting no matter how fast it's not going to be that day. Mm -hmm. Okay. All right. Um, Gary, John, any other thoughts? No, it's, it, you know, advanced planning is always helped, but you know, it's really hard because you, you don't know sometimes until you really get your hands in there, you got to find out you need this little piece or that little piece. Or in my case, I, I never seem to have enough wiring with this electrically dependent engine. 
And so I ended up having to reorder tons and tons of wiring. You know, uh, aircraft spruce is great uh, in that you got the wish list. So as you're kind of going along, you can add parts here and parts there and hopefully get a big enough order to cut down some of the uh, the shipping costs. But, you know, towards the end of it, when you get down the last week or two, um, and all you're holding up is just for a couple of parts you can't get a hardware store, you know, you're going to bite the bullet and just pay the extra shipping and, you know, just consider part of the part of the process. And it's really not going to hurt you because it's going to get you in the air much faster. And Don't kick yourself about that. But I don't think any of us, since we're not professionals and we're not building the same plane over and over again, uh, we're going to have all this stuff in, on hand or have enough advanced planning. You'll get the bulk of it, but it's inevitable. I think you're going to end up having to go back and reorder some, some stuff. Yeah, and I think you, you just need to be able to roll with the punches. And, you know, you <laughs> how many times have you uh, submitted the order on aircraft spruce and then go, damn, two yes. more things I forgot. <laughs> but you know yeah, you're going to well. be ordering next week. So you have a weekly order, <laughs> a standing order with aircraft spruce. So you'll pick it up. And, you know, you just kind of roll with it. And in the event, you know, it's like, yeah, at the end, yeah, I probably spent – Two or three hundred bucks extra in shipping for all that stuff, but it's it's a net. You know, it's what we're trying to do. We, we all have the same experience, you know. We're all like, "Oh man, I really wish I could have not put two orders in on the exact same day." But I guess you're right. We all do it. <laughs> oh, I've done that. I've done <laughs> yes. that too. That's so yep. There is one caveat that maybe you want to look at again, make sure they're still offering this. But many, I don't know, many years ago, but several years ago. Um, at the bottom of the, the financing section there in Aircraft Bruce, there was a credit card offer. No, uh, ain't there me. anymore. I tell you, I looked. It is. It's not there. Well, it's I have not a little there. booker. And basically, if you had at least $100 worth of, of, of order, it was free shipping. And I got to tell you, I have saved a ton <laughs> of money on yeah. shipping. Yeah, well, they, they learned their lesson with you. Yeah, yeah Gary, you ruined it for us. Yeah, yeah I'm, I, it paid off handsomely for me. That was the best thing I I actually did. got the EAA credit card because I thought it was going to give me a lot. Well, it gave me a lot on the first order and then yeah. nothing else. And yeah. I'm so, so at the opposite yeah. end. I'm so at the opposite end of the spectrum that literally the UPS guy has been here so often. He has learned to bring <laughs> dog biscuits to the door for our dogs. Yeah. The dogs now love him and when we're on a walk and they see the UPS truck, they get all excited. My UPS driver wants to see what I did this week. On my plane, because he's delivering so much stuff. Oh, so where are you now? So I, I'm actually getting critique from my UPS driver. So for all you guys out and gals out in Sonics land that are building you and laughing at us because you're laughing along with us, right? <laughs> oh, they all know. Well, the, you know, the guys that are just starting going, oh, that's not going to be me. I'm going to be tight. I'm, I'm going to make three <laughs> orders. No, right. you're going to have a weekly order from aircraft spruce and it's going to be like three nuts two bolts and one bushing i have bins on the 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 hanger full yep yeah yeah robbie you said something that that it's good if you're going to put an order in for some an4 bolts why not throw a couple extra in or a couple extra sizes you know one size shorter one size longer because it's going to be 37 cents worth of bolts you know and it's going to save you in a whole order down the road and washers, extra washers every time because you'll drop them, they'll roll, they'll vanish. You can loan them and barter them. And well, you know, one of oh, the those go that... into the cracks in the concrete. Yes, like they you do. Wouldn't believe. Yeah, yeah. That one thing that about that order and extra really helped me is when I built my plane, I was real bad about that. If I needed two, I'd order ten. 
whatever yep. it was. And so a lot of the stuff I still had hanging around in the hangar when I when I did the upgrade on the engine. So, uh, you know, some of the hardware I, I didn't need. All right. So actually getting into the, the nuts and bolts of it. So the first thing you're going to do, obviously, remove the old engine. And then you've got the old engine mount. And as Sonics builders are familiar with, on a tail dragger Sonics, the, the, the gear legs plug into the engine mount. So at the very least, you're going to have to pull the old mount off and salvage your old gear legs to be, to reuse in your new engine mount. So, Mike, how did that go for you? Did you have any problems reusing your old tail dragger gear legs in your new mount? Well, it not not really. Uh, I mean, you know, there's always the problem of drilling titanium, but uh, and aligning the gear. But uh, I was hoping that I could just pull the gear out of the old mount and stick it up in the new one, and it it might uh, by some miracle fit, and it did not. So, uh, and and I didn't even check to see, you know, how easy it was going to be just to re-drill uh, that end. In fact, I didn't do it because. In order to do that, my my new hole would have been so close to the old hole, I, old hole that I didn't like it. So I ended up pulling the uh, the uh, uh, wheel and tire and axle and all that off one end, and then just turning the uh, titanium uh, bar uh, 180 degrees and uh, you know top to bottom, and also 180 degree or well, 90 degrees uh, uh, rotationally. And uh, sticking it back in and just starting over drilling, so that that took a little while to to get that all sorted out and get the gear lined up uh, the way I wanted it. Yeah. Now, just just for clarity, if anybody ha- wasn't quite following that, Sonic says you can do this. This is an approved solution. If you just rotate the gear leg to a new spot so that your new hole is kind of intersecting your old hole, um, that's an approved thing. And if you flop it, you know, top to bottom, like you're saying, Mike then the holes are, are not even going to intersect. They're going to be in a different spot on the gear leg. That's perfectly allowed. That's going to be inside the socket, either the gear leg socket side or the engine mount socket side. And that doesn't have any negligible, it has a negligible impact on the, the strength of the gear leg. Sonics allows you to do that. So you might as well go ahead and do it and save yourself the price of new legs. Exactly. Robbie, what did you do? I got so lucky. I was able to reuse the gear legs as is, and I got better toe in. I don't know how, but that was the one thing that I was just like, woohoo, it went great. So your your new engine mount lined up perfectly with your existing holes? For whatever reason, the answer is yes. And I, to this day, I just think that, you know, somebody was looking over my shoulder and said, okay, you've, you've had enough problems. Let's get this one right. <laughs> yeah. I take no credit. There was well, no Jeff. There. Jeff, I did it with my uh, my Wayx um, or the B model conversion. I have uh, Tracy O'Brien legs, and it looks I haven't measured yet, but it looks like they're aligned pretty properly from the old holes um, between the A model and the B model engine mount. Yeah. Now, Sonics, you know that they're the vendor that makes the engine mounts. They make them in a jig, and they're made. Fairly precisely. Now, there's always the possibility there's going to be minor variations. And undoubtedly, there's one engine mount that comes off the line that's going to be all jacked up. And somebody's going to get that and have a terrible experience. But for the most part, I think that the tolerances are tight enough that there's a reasonable chance that you're going to pull the, your old gear legs out of your mount, uh, put them in the new mount, and they're just going to line right up and you're going to throw a new bolt in and away you go. It sure worked out for me. 
It didn't for me, but that's okay. I, it worked out okay just starting over. Yeah, yeah. And, um, you know, as a as a last ditch, if you have to replace the gear legs, uh, I haven't looked at the price online recently, but it's, uh, I don't know, it's about four, maybe $500 for that, I think, to just buy the new titanium legs themselves because you don't need new sockets. You just need new legs. So in the in the course of your engine upgrade, you know that that's going to add some to the cost, but in the grand scheme, it's um it's probably not going to be a huge deal breaker. Okay, so what about options to salvage? So if you get maybe a used engine mount, or you know you're looking at the axles socket, you know where it's gonna you know, where you're gonna drill it into your um your titanium, especially if you ended up kind of swapping them top to bottom and rotating and all that. Um, you might have to salvage, you know, your, your sockets or your, your mount or whatever. Um, Mike, have you seen this uh, anywhere else? Have you seen anybody try to reweld their, um, you know, their mounts or anything like that to make repairs? Any, any thoughts on whether that's a good idea or even possible? Uh, not on an engine uh, swap out. I, I have seen, you know, some rewelding and patching uh, where there was uh, uh, in uh, mount breakage from a, a extremely hard landing. But uh, you know that worked out okay. So I don't I don't know why why they were you know having to to uh, reweld or, or modify slightly would uh, make much difference. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Well, and I guess uh, the next thing on the engine mount is. You know, you're going to have to match the, your new engine mount onto your airframe. And your airframe is already drilled for the screws that hold the actual steel mount to the aluminum mounting angles in your fuselage. So if you're using a brand new mount, there's no problem. The, the new mount is undrilled. You just fit it into the fuselage. You align it properly. And then you use the existing holes in your aluminum mounting angles on the fuselage to drill into your engine mount. And... If um, if you have a new mount, that's really not that much of a challenge. If you have an, a used mount, if you bought a used mount that had been perhaps drilled to somebody else's airframe and then sold as used, you may have a little different problem trying to fit that on there. Robbie, you talked about drill bushings for your mount. Why don't you walk us through what you did and kind of what the situation was and, and how you solved it? So that was exactly why I bought a... Uh a new mount, even though it was secondhand, I made sure it wasn't one of the ones with the thin walls, because um, there was a early batch that, that had thinner tubing. So I made sure I had the right one, and I bought drill bushings from McMaster Car specifically because the corners of the airframe at the firewall are, were already updrilled for the AeroV, and I knew that there was no way I could accurately up, you know, drill a large hole in the brand new mount without A, botching it, and B, enlarging the, the holes on the existing airframe and really having a problem. So McMaster Car, for all, you know very low cost, sold me two drill bushings that allowed me to pilot drill the mount. And if anybody needs them, I kept them because this is a great, great asset. I think they're going to Ohio soon for a friend of mine. Um, so that allowed me to accurately pilot drill the holes. And then I had a way to up drill them from there carefully. So I did the usual, you know, build it, drill a pilot hole, up drill it, up drill it again until it was final size and it worked. 
Yeah, and again, if anybody's having a hard time visualize this, the aluminum mounting angle is also countersunk for that flush screw. It's a quarter-inch screw that holds the, the, the mount to the airplane. And that countersink makes it kind of a thin wall. It's, it's not really knife-edged, but it's pretty thin right in there. And so a large quarter-inch drill bit can start to kind of wallow that aluminum out in the process of trying to, to get going drilling into that steel engine mount. And so, Robbie, what, you're, what you did was to use a bushing that kept a smaller drill nicely centered in your aluminum angle hole so you could get it piloted into your steel engine mount. Yeah, and, and the bushing I measured, you know, exactly to fit the existing hole. So, Jeff, you described it better than I did, but it, it allowed me to make a very fine, very accurate pilot hole that I could then work with. Now, another way of doing this, at least it, it's worked for me in the past. Maybe I just got lucky. Uh, so when I'm doing that, you're right. You can't really just put a big-ass bit through that aluminum and try to drill all the way through that steel. But you can use that aluminum with the same size hole and drill bit. And what you'll do is you just turn it slowly. You'll end up just marking where the center of the hole is going to be on the steel, taking the steel out where you can actually get to it, put it in a press or, you know, a big half-inch hand drill, whatever you need to do, and then drill through that way. Wouldn't that also work as well? Uh, That's what I did. Yeah. Yeah, and I, th- I think that, that that'll work fine also. Um, the the thing I like about what Robbie did is that um, it, I don't know, it just allows you to to go straight to it, you know, using the bushing right right there. And so I think in rapid succession, there's very low risk and you get a very precise result. It, it's it's clearly not the only way to do it because I didn't use a bushing on mine either. But I think it's a, it's a great way to do it, especially if you can borrow bushings from somebody else. I, I got a pair on loan out. Yep. Right. Yeah. You don't even have to source them. So you just get them in the mail. Yeah. If I had it to do over again and thought about that, I would have gone that way for sure. Okay. And then uh, I guess um, there is the possibility of taking a used mount that has already been drilled to somebody's airframe. And, And this happens all the time on the Sonics Builders list. Somebody is building, they've been working on their airplane for years and years. They've got Say they've got that Aero-V or they've got that Jabiru and it's already mounted. The engine is the engine mount has been fitted to the airframe and it's on the gear. It's rolling around the workshop. And then maybe even before they even bought the engine, they decided to go with a different engine and that requires a different engine mount. So they pull that mount off. It's already been drilled, but it's still basically brand new. And they sell it as a used mount at a, at a deep discount. So you might save hundreds and hundreds of dollars. But you now have a mount that's already been drilled to somebody else's airframe that's not going to match with your holes. And really, you have two options here. You know, the first option is you take out your engine mount, your aluminum angles out of the fuselage, and you fabricate new ones that are undrilled, and you match them to the existing holes in the steel engine mount. And although that's not terribly convenient, it's not particularly hard to do that. Or the other option is you... You close up the holes that have been drilled in the engine mount, take it to have somebody have them weld those holes closed, and then you re-drill matching to your existing airframe. Yeah, you could probably also uh, upsize the, the things if, if the holes weren't too far off to maybe a 5 16th instead of quarter inch. Yeah, uh, that's true. If there, if there's just slightly, you know, some slight misalignment, reaming them to the next bolt size will probably take care of that. And Jeff, uh, my original uh, Jabiru A model uh, engine mount was a used mount that was pre-drilled, 
<clears throat> I bought it at Oshkosh at the uh, Aerofly or the Flymart. I took it to Kerry. Um, this was several years ago, and said, "What can I do?" And he said, "Just fill those in. Just uh, get a get a gas welder and fill fill the holes in and redrill them. Grind them down, refill them." So, from an unofficial Sonics stance, you can do this. Right, and that's a standard repair technique. Um, a, a lot of builders and AMPs are going to be familiar with with how to weld holes closed to make repairs. And so this is not a particularly difficult or risky repair procedure. It's inconvenient if you don't have any of the equipment and you have no experience doing it, but go find somebody at your chapter and they can help you with it. Yeah. I and I actually did, I did that and I had 400 hours on mine with no issue and ended up selling my used mount to another guy for deep discount. Yeah. I went and found somebody with a uh, TIG welding rig and, high skills locally because I also had lugs added to my uh, axle weldments. So yeah, it pays pays to ask around at the EA chapter and find somebody with the right skills. I don't have them, so I found the person that did. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, once the engine mount is, uh, is back on the airplane and you've got the gear legs back in, it's back up and rolling on its own gear, then it's time to actually hang the new engine. And the first thing you got to do is you got to make all those engine connections. So if you're going from one direct drive air cooled engine to another direct drive air cooled engine, um, that's probably going to be a fairly simple thing. You know, you're going to have similar type of sensors, probably similar controls on your, on your throttle and mixture cables, things like that. Probably. Um, if you're going to something that's very different, those engine connections again could be very different. So going from AeroV to Jabiru, Mike, uh, what did you have to change as far as actually making connections to your, your new Jabiru? Uh, there was not just a whole lot as far as making new connections. Of course, I had to, to uh, you know, uh, wire in the um, descending units and all of that uh, to the, to the uh, RDAC and, uh, properly. But uh, even before that, uh, one thing I did, uh, you know, before hanging the engine I knew that there were going to be some interference problems with some of the things I had on the firewall. So uh, other than the battery, no, the battery, yeah, everything, everything except the RDAC uh, came off the firewall. Uh, And I filled the holes that I I knew I wouldn't use and uh, did that with just uh, a red RTV. And, uh, uh, And then after I hung the engine, then I had to position those. But uh, as far as the wiring and the connections and things like that, that was all fairly straightforward and, and not, not a problem. It was just getting, getting all the stuff back on the firewall, uh, uh, you know, after you hang the engine to see where they're going to go. That Sometimes that can be a little difficult to, to get in there and drill it and put nut plates or, or whatever you're going to do for that. Nut certs in some places like I did. Yeah, and that's true. I guess we didn't, we didn't specifically talk about that. You're going to be probably removing old accessories off of the firewall and possibly hanging new accessories. And a good example of that, the AeroV, you're going to have two ignition coils that are going to come off. And with your Jabiru, you're going to have a starter solenoid that's going to have to go on someplace. Yes, and I, had, I also have a uh, master solenoid on mine. So, you know, I had to put both of those on. Yep, I had to do the same. Mm-hmm. Okay, and then let's talk about uh, fuel system changes. So if you follow the Sonics plans, more or less, you know, you come through the firewall, whether you do a direct 
sort of direct routing with a filter going to your carb or you you bring a, your fuel line through the firewall down to a gas escalator kind of down low and in the corner. Uh, both of those are shown on the plans. If you follow that, you're probably not going to have too much of a challenge because you know you're you're going to have to replace the firewall forward the forward side, the engine compartment side of your fuel line, but you're not going to have too much difficulty there. Now, Robbie, going to the Bing, you know, you, you mentioned tubing and and uh, and things like that. Just briefly, what all did you have to kind of solve to get your Bing hooked up? So, first of all, it was just planning because um, the Bing is in a different position in a different orientation than the arrow uh, arrow injector was. So, it requires a aux fuel pump. Um, I bought a facet and I put it uh, I I put it on the one of the engine tube engine mount tubes so it was just a matter of planning it and making sure that everything was very well fire sleeved done right um i wanted it done exactly as i did with the aero v which is i'm not gonna not gonna go cheap on that part of the fuel system because it's on the firewall side and and like gary said you know first time we ran fuel through it it leaked so you got to make sure you get the fittings right you got to make sure they fit correctly um, so once the, all of that was solved, it was just a matter of learning the Bing and how it works, and it's different. Um, it was just planning, and like everything else, uh, you know, I had to order extra parts and had to be patient with myself and learn that, yeah, it's late on a Sunday. I really want to get this done, and I screwed that up last time. I'm not going to do it again. Mm-hmm. Well, specifically, if you're taking an Aero V off, an, an Aero V with an Aero carb, and you're going to put a, a Jabiru on, and you're going to run an aero carb. You're going to need a probably a new aero carb because there's a, a smaller and a, and a larger diameter carb. And so you probably had a small aero carb on your Aerovi. You're going to need that new aero carb, the larger one for your Jabiru. And then it's mounted in a different location. The aero carb sits kind of underslung on the Aerovi, down low, down by the bottom of the cowling. And in the Jabiru, it's tucked in behind the engine, kind of mounted vertically. And so your fuel line is going to have to route just a slightly different way. Uh, before you had those two exhaust pipes on the Aero-V that came right down the center line and ended up down there by that central tube on the engine mount. And with the Jabiru, the exhaust pipes don't exit down there. They exit more out to the sides and a little further forward. So you're going to have to kind of, you know, route that stuff different. And probably that means you're going to need different length mixture and, and throttle cables as you kind of change the routing going in there. You might even need to penetrate the firewall in different locations. So, yeah, for me, that was uh, part of the challenge, too, was uh, I had definitely had to get a different throttle. So I went with the Vernier throttle, which I love. Um, there is no mixture control out of the box with the Bing. There's a thing called a Hackman I'm working on putting in. So the mixture cable that I had for the Aero-V became the choke cable for the Bing. Um, and... Yeah, that was just, you know, learning where things go. I had to buy an extra part for the throttle arm assembly to put the throttle cable in that was a surprise to both me and the new distributor for Jabiru. Um, It was, you know, maybe 50 bucks. Just no big deal. Um, Just learning and working my way through it. And again, you know, just more stuff that you got to be patient with. Okay. And then... um... I guess the baffling and the actual fitment to the cowling is, is the next thing. Um, in general, if you're running an Aero-V, you're going to be running the fence baffles. And that is a vertical fence that seals up against the cowling. It, it, you know, more or less like that. That's what Sonics recommends. And if you're going over to a Jabiru specifically, you're going to have a box baffle. And so if you buy the Sonics baffle kit, 
it's going to, you're going to have to make the new baffles and it's going to fit without too much problem. If you're going to an engine other than a Jabru, you know, your baffle system might be completely different. So the other uh, Jeff, option, yeah, go Jeff, ahead, Mike. Uh, yeah, the, uh, the new, uh, Jabru that, that Robert, uh, Barber bought actually came with the, uh, uh, fiberglass tunnel baffles. Uh, really? You know, like, yeah, like they did originally. And they, and, he just went with that when he uh, put the engine back on, and uh, it seems to be working just fine. Huh. I did not get. I did not get those. Uh, when did you? When did you order yours? Uh, last fall. Well, no, last okay. summer at Oshkosh. At Oshkosh. So yeah, he was new, and uh, he was he just picked up the distributorship, and and it's no big deal because I ended up. Well, Jeff will get there, but I ended up doing something slightly different, anyways. Okay. Well, yeah, and um, I guess I'll just throw out there the the old style fiberglass baffles, the the tunnel baffles that they used to sell for years and years. Um, they were really tall, and they just there was no way you could get those things to fit underneath the Sonic scowling. And the newer ones, like what Robert has, are much trimmer. They fit lower to the engine, and they're and they're not as large. Um, I think that's probably why you know Sonics, you know deviated from that early on is just because they couldn't make those things work. Now you may have the option of either doing an aluminum baffle, buy it from Sonics, or, um, you know, if you're having a Gen 4, uh, just going with the fiberglass one. And frankly, the the aluminum laser cut Sonics baffle kit isn't going to fit the Gen 4 anyway. So, Robbie, this is probably where you're going. So why don't you tell us about your baffles? So I did buy the kit from Sonics because I wanted the I wanted the, the kit and the plans and um I knew going into it that it was going to be different. Bill Larson had told me this, who went right before me. Um, I did not get the fiberglass tunnels, no big deal. So what Bill did, and again, great builder community, Bill Larson in Peoria um, basically traced his, and I applied what I had, and his traced uh, kind of plan. And they weren't really plans. They were like, okay, here's what's different. And it came out great. I was able to create really nice you know, really well-fitting baffles. And then I stole Jeff's idea of putting the hinge pins in, um, man, that's awesome. So I kind of went with, you know, a little bit of modification due to the engine modification for the hinge pins, but old school with the Sonics, uh, kit. And it worked out great. Um, it's about one third Sonics and about, you know, you know, probably about 50, 50, about half, half out of the box and half custom made, but I'm very, very happy with it. Yeah, the the baffling on mine when I I uh, changed engines. Uh, Robert Barber actually did that. He he had gone through quite a bit working out the uh, cooling on his engine, so he just kind of took the lead and and built most of those baffles. He has the hinge pins also. He also, uh, uh, whereas you have I, I'm not I forget what they're called, but underneath the uh, the cylinders, you know, between the cylinders, there's there's a plate that kind of. Uh, sucks up in there to keep air from just blowing down through he put uh and he calls them but but uh butterflies yep and he put put one on top also and so all the air is forced right down over those fins and none just escapes through that big gap between the ser- the cylinders so and, and when he got through with it i have never had any kind of of cooling problem yeah those are the inner cylinder baffles um jabru calls them bat wings but some like butterflies, you know, it's it's the inner cylinder, and it it keeps the air wrapped around the cylinders and not just escaping in the gap between the cylinders. Right, and and Robert just had them on the top too, and it uh, it seems to work great. 
I would like to see a picture of that so I could add those. Yes. Okay. I will uh, get a picture of it and, and send it to you, hopefully, this coming week, if that's soon enough. Oh, whenever. It's, it's okay. all good. All right. All right. And then you have your cowling modification. So if you're going to reuse your existing cowling, uh, many engines will fit underneath, especially if you have a universal cow. And now when I did my original one, I had a universal cowl on my Aero-V, and um, I just, you know, put it, my, my Jabru in, and the cowling matched up perfectly. The prop was in the right place. Within, I don't know, a 32nd of an inch, it was in the right place. It was all aligned properly, and I had no problems. All I had to do is just change the access door location, because the fill port, the oil fill port on an Aero-V is in a slightly different location than on a Jabru. And then, of course, your dipstick is, is located in a different spot on your Aero-V as well. So you may have to move your cowl access doors around a little bit. Yeah, now, I, Robbie, I, it's... Oh, go ahead, Mike. Yeah, I was going to say that I did not use the, my uh, Aero-V cowl. I had the universal cowl, and uh, when I tried to fit it only uh, with the Jabiru, I was, I don't know, between a quarter and... I don't know, three-eighths of an inch short. So I would have actually had to fiberglass an extension on the uh, aft side of mine to make it work. You know, fiberglass it, sand it down so that it would fit on the uh, around the metal parts that I had on the on the fuselage. So I, I just went ahead and bought a, a new baffle, I mean, a new cowl for mine. Yeah, okay. And Robbie, you said you went with uh, with a new cowl. Was that because you you were anticipating problems or you just wanted to upgrade to a horizontally split style? Uh, both. I had been told that it probably wouldn't fit and I was pretty certain that was going to be accurate. And plus I like the horizontal split and I also went with the Skybolt fasteners, which I, I have kind of a love-hate relationship with, but it all worked out in the end. Okay. So w one more thing to throw out there, if anybody's going to go with Skybolts, um, they require some special tools. I have them all. So if anybody wants to borrow them, as long as, again, they come back to the tool loan program, uh, you know, don't don't go buying them. I've got them. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah, I've heard heard the same thing with Skybolts. They're really nice when you get them all dialed in, but boy, are they a pain in the butt. Yeah, I have one one particular fastener that, that hates me, and I, I swear I can hear it laughing when I'm putting the cowling back okay. on because if I don't do it in exactly the right order, I think I hear snickering. I think the RV guys are the ones who are really pushing these sky bolts, and I think they may have some investment in that company. They might, because uh, I went, I have re had to repurchase two of them. Um, so yeah, it's possible. And they're and not I'm, cheap. No, they're not cheap, and I'm pretty certain that I did not fit one of them properly with the backing washer that holds it in place, because not long, well. Uh, about two hours after I started flying my airplane, I came back one day and found a really nasty gouge in the back of my Prince P tip, right opposite of where there was a missing screw or a missing sky bolt. Mm -hmm. And I'm pretty certain it got sucked out into the back of the prop. That cost me about a month and a half, and I had to send it back to Lonnie. So lesson learned there, you really have to secure those puppies. Mm -hmm. Well, on, on mine, um, the other problem I had with my cowling, although it, it wrapped around the engine just fine, there was interference on the front of the sump. So on the Jabiru, it has that deep oil sump, which is pushed really far forward. And 
the early universal cowls had a very kind of trim oil sump area on the front of the cowling. And they have since increased the size of that sump to fit around the Jabiru baffle or the, the, the sump area. So I ended up not, not having that. And so I had to cut all that fiberglass away that was interfering. And then Sonics, I think they even still have a few of these laying around. They had these fiberglass blisters that you would add onto the front of your cowling that would add additional room for the Jabiru sump. So I had to add that on there, and that took a couple of days to get all that worked out. But um, yeah, so depending on the fit, you may have to clearance around your sump. And then commonly on the Jabiru, that front cylinder, that number one cylinder, the exhaust pipe comes forward, and it can sit very, very close to the fiberglass on that cylinder. And so you may have some interference or just too close for comfort on that exhaust pipe, and you may have to do a little bit of work clearancing for that pipe itself. Even on the B model, um, I've had to make a, make a bubble for that. Mike, did you have any problem with uh, needing blisters or clearance in the cowling? Uh, just very little. Um, you know, after I put the baffling on inside, you know, there were a few places that uh, were pretty tight. I thought maybe that it would be okay, but uh, after flying a little bit, uh, uh, some of those little corners of that baffling uh, uh, actually wore through the the cowling, so I had to go back in and clearance that a little bit and a re little refiber glass, but mm -hmm. mostly I was okay. Same same for me, Jeff. I had to, um, I still have one spot that I think I'm going to have to go back and tweak on the fiberglass where I think it's still rubbing, but what I did was I filed very minimally at the top of the uh, sump fins uh, two other local builders have done that, and I just clearanced it there rather than go with the bubble. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, and, you know, a little bit of filing on uh, on a Jabiru engine. You know, there's that number one cylinder, which, which sits real close to the inlet, and so the instructions have you trim those fins back to, to create room. There's no problem with that. Some people get really bent out of shape about cutting a piece of their fins off. I can understand that, but at the end of the day... That cylinder is going to be one of your coolest running cylinders anyway. It doesn't need the extra fin area, so it's never going to miss it. And then around the sump, same thing. If you have to clearance the sump, no big deal. Just clearance it. Yeah, I have the Gen 4 engine. I did not have to touch number one cylinder. I just had to touch the top of the sump. And I still think I need to go back and probably file it a little more. We'll see. I'm trying to do that as little as possible. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that's one of those things that um, I have seen people just get, get way too worked up over having to, you know, touch a file to their engine. Oh, yeah. And it's like, you know, in the grand scheme of things, this does not matter. This is not worth getting all worked up over. Just do it and move out. I agree completely. And I've had the same experience where people get all wound up and tight. So, Okay. Um, any other specific tasks that, that come to memory? Uh you know, installing the new engine. Now we talked mostly about Jabiru's, but you know, if you had a very different engine, uh, there may be other unique tasks that, you know, we don't even, we don't, we're not even predicting here, but anything else come to mind? Well, one little trick I think I've, I figured out is after you get your engine mount drilled to the frame, I found it much easier to attach the engine mount to the engine and then attach that assembly back to the frame rather than trying to put the mount on and then trying to hoist up an engine and trying to get it aligned just right to fit all those uh, mount pins. And for some reason, it just seems to be much more, much easier to, to when, this, when the engine's down on the ground, just to bolt the frame right to it 
and then bolt the frame with the engine to the to the airframe. Yeah, and that's areas where experience, you know, can kind of show you, you know, an easier way to do it. That was the most nerve-wracking part of the entire process for me was getting the engine up onto a table and getting it onto the airframe because there were four of us working in close proximity and I had pictures in my mind of, you know, us dropping a brand new engine on the floor of a concrete hangar and me going out and standing in the middle of the highway begging for someone to hit me. <laughs> yeah, Robbie, and, uh, you know, just as maybe a, a counterpoint to that, when I was getting ready to hang my engine, my Jabru, um, I was in my, my garage. I had a little single car garage and it was pretty tight in there. And, and I was trying to find somebody I could borrow an, a cherry picker to hang it. And I was not having a lot of luck. And eventually I thought, you know, I'm, I might be just overthinking this whole thing. Maybe I just need to just go ahead and do it. And so I, I threw a strap around, uh, the, the trusses in the top of the, the garage. I used to come along, just a cable operator come along, and I wrapped it around the engine and hoisted it up. And 30 minutes later, the engine was mounted to the frame. And so sometimes, you know, you just got to maybe think, is there a is there a low-tech way? Can I get a couple of burly friends and we just grab onto this thing and lift it up and do it? Can I can I make a simple tripod to, to raise it up? Can I use something like that? You know, you have you have a solution in mind which would be, simple and very elegant and maybe the best solution. But if you can't get to that, don't let that just bring your progress to a screeching halt. Maybe there's a low-tech way you can just sort of grunt it out and get it done. Yeah, we spent a morning well, you know, scratching our heads trying to figure out how can we winch this up with the hangar door? Who's got an engine hoist that'll fit? And then finally we all looked at each other and said, let's just lift it up on the table and it worked out fine. And I had a cherry picker. And it required Gary and one of his buddies and me to get that damn Jabiru mounted to my B model. Shaking and cussing. And <clears throat> so we had all the gear. So it doesn't really matter if you have all the gear. It's still going to be a bit of a challenge. Yeah. Well, I have pulled my Jabiru um, for various reasons a couple of times. And... Um, I did it in a hangar without a whole lot of support, and so I I went to Home Depot. I picked up a few two by fours and built a tripod, and and you know made a little uh, improvised engine hoist right there in the hangar over my engine. And uh, it's not something that is uh, is going to win any awards, but you know it cost me a couple of hours and forty bucks at Home Depot to go get the tools I needed, and. As opposed to trying to go, you know, spend an entire weekend to source other tools, it allowed me to keep going on my project. A Harbor Freight cherry picker is about a hundred bucks. So, if you have a Harbor you know. Freight in town, but when you're stuck on the side of the road, you know, you you got to get creative. <laughs> yeah, but you get one, and then you can do it over and over and over again, and you're you'll be really popular with all your friends. Right. <laughs> now. When I did my engine swap on on the first Sonics, um, you know, I, I sat down, I kind of mapped out, this is what I'm going to need. I, I made a list of my hardware. I, I, I bought new, you know, throttle and mixture cables and fuel supplies. And I still had to make a couple of orders. I don't recall exactly what it was I had to get. But I had a two-week period uh, where I had plenty of time to work on it. And it was actually a really simple process. I started it on a weekend. I worked all week and I finished it. 11 days later, and I flew it, you know, right after that. So for me, it was less than two weeks to do that engine swap. 
And part of that was just good fortune. You know, my cowling worked without a whole lot of serious problem. I had to, you know, change the blister and I had to relocate an access door. But everything else just kind of, you know, the old stuff came off, the new stuff came on, and it was no real problem. So I don't want this to seem like this is, it's a, a monumental task that is going to put you off from it. Certainly, there are things that you're going to have to solve, but it doesn't necessarily have to be insurmountable. I look at it, Jeff, as if I'm, I'm like the slowest and I will find the easiest way to screw up. If I could do it, if this is capable for anybody, um, I just stuck it out and got it done. So you guys can too. Yeah. And, you know, knowing that other people have had the same challenge sometimes uh, just makes it a little bit easier to, to think uh, <laughs> that, uh, you know, you're not the, the worst builder in the world just because you had a bit of a setback on, on Wait, Monday. Are we saying if Robbie can do it, anybody can do it? Yeah, pretty much that's what I'm saying here. I'll, I'll be the uh, first to I, say it. I was trying not to say it, but I'm glad. I will. Did. I'll be happy. Right, I'm, I'm, if, I'm not, I, I will always tell people if there's a, a way to mess something up, I will find it. I'll be the first guy to find it. And, and as far as time, my biggest problem was because I was traveling so much, you know, I come back from a business trip on a Friday. It took me till noon on Saturday to get out there. And then I don't want to spend all weekend away from the family because I was gone all week. And that's what drug mine out to be nine months. This is not a nine month project, as you guys clearly showed. Okay, so when when you're all done with the engine, um, the, the next thing you have to do is you have to make sure the paperwork is done properly. And so one of those things is you're going to have to put your plane back into phase one. So th that can be really simple or it can be a little bit frustrating. If you are still in your original home area and, you know, you, you, you flew the airplane from that same local area and you're in the same flight test area, it could be as simple as just sending a letter to your, your existing FISDO, the same one you, you dealt with before. Send them a letter with a new program, uh, program letter and put it back into phase one for your five hours, fly it, sign it off, and you're done. If you are a second owner, you're going to undoubtedly be in a different FISDO, so you're going to have to contact the FISDO. You're going to have to send them a brand new program letter that outlines where you intend to fly it, that describes the major change that you're making, and uh, and go from there. It's really not that much different at the end of the day, but it just, uh, you know, it may be the first time that you've had anything to do with the FISDO and Phase 1 requirements and things like that. Robbie, what did you do? I got so lucky. I dealt with the exact same guy who signed me off. I knew what he expected. He he agreed with me that the only thing that was required was the five hours. It was a the same test area. That was the easiest part of the whole thing. And it happened very quickly. I was thinking, oh, this is going to be a delay. And No, I got to say that there's a lot of people in the Chicago area who have had poor things to say about the DuPage Visto. I have had the exact opposite experience, not only when I got the plane signed off originally, but every interaction with them has been easy. My experience with that was a little different. I uh, was at a different airport, you know, that was about uh, 40 miles away from from uh, where, I, where I did my first testing. But uh, 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 Bruce Watkins had just finished building his, his Sonex and was in the same hangar with me. And he had the FAA inspector come out. Uh, and the timing worked out great. So when he got out there, I... I just talked to him, and he uh, gave me a new test area, which was a little smaller. He didn't really like my 150-mile radius that I had on my first test area. So <laughs> so I got, a, I think, a 50-miler, I forget, 35-mile, whatever it was. I just just took it because I knew it was only going to be five hours. But it was, it was real straightforward for me because he was already out there at the hangar. 
Yeah, if anybody is curious, um, anybody that, that says you don't have to put the plane back into phase one, they need to go back and just kind of read their operating limitations and, and read the references. You know, anytime you make a major alteration to the airplane, you potentially have to notify the FAA, notify the FISDO, and put it back into phase one. And so the question becomes, well, what are those major alterations? Well, clearly, you know, big things like new engines that have different center of gravities and things like that are going to be major alterations. You know, whether you're changing from one prop to another prop is a major alteration, yeah, that might be a little bit more of a gray area. If you take off and you replace it with a prop that has a couple inches more pitch, is that really a major alteration? I don't know. That's for you and the FISDO to talk about. Or one brand to another or, you know, very different performance characteristics. So if you have any questions at all, just assume that you're going to be making a major alteration. Go ahead and send that new program letter and request the flight test area and all that. And they're going to come back to you with, you know, any clarifications they need, they're going to give you that five-hour minimum uh, flight test. And uh, it's going to take you five hours just to go back and rerun all your performance testing anyway. So it's not like they're asking you to do anything that's that's really uh, overly burdensome. Yeah, you know, and even even like in Robert Barber's case, when he replaced uh, one Jabiru engine with a later version of Jabiru engine, uh, you know, depending on the FISDO, you know, that might even constitute a major change, uh, simply because you're changing engines, you know, that's a major, major step. But uh, in Robert's case, it was not, but you really need to get something, I think, uh, in writing on that, if it's that, if that's the case, just so that if something happens down the road and the insurance company says, well, you didn't do this, so we're not paying you, you have that documentation. Yes. And there is a spot on your operating limitations that, that you have to complete at the end of your phase one flight testing that says, you know, it's basically your phase one sign out. And there's a statement in there that you have to talk about your VX and VY and your stall speed and the CG and the weight at which the airplane was tested. So the idea is go test the airplane, make sure it's safe and controllable and gather performance data and all that. And then you are going to record the key data right in your operating limitations. That's a regulatory thing that has to be in the airplane. So if any of those things have changed, if your center of gravity range has changed because the engine weights are different, if you have more power and your climb performance is different, all those types of things are going are gonna to potentially change, even on a minor engine swap. Um, you need to go back and re-verify all that and then make sure you update your operating limitations because you don't want to have a minor incident that calls your attention to the FAA and then they start digging into you and they say, well, wait a sec, well, you didn't really, you didn't really comply with your operating limitations. All this has changed and you didn't update it. Okay, and then uh, I, we talked about the, the testing, but um, Robbie, describe your test procedures for after your airplane was flying. Oh, I wrung it out. <laughs> I had the turbo, then I had the standard AeroV, but I had no experience with the Jabiru 3300. I went out and tested it like it was a brand new airplane and assumed that it was and found no unpleasant surprises, but had a lot of fun with it. And the second time around, I got a lot more out of the testing. Right. It's more than just um, a different power and feel of the airplane. Uh, your empty CG will likely have changed a little bit. The prop may be very different, you know, going from um, probably the same length prop, but you could be going from uh, a sense of niche to like a P-tip in your case. 
Um, so there, there are going to be a number of things that are just going to be different. And you don't want to cut yourself short. You want to go out there and really become familiar with it all over again. You want to gather that good performance data because it'd be really nice to have accurate POH information. And if you don't gather the information, you're always just going to have sort of this fuzzy performance notion and not actually something that's going to be decent in your, in your POH. And the prop turns the other direction. Yeah, that's a good point. You may have to pull off that uh, trim tab and, and uh, put a different one on that trims you the other way. I still occasionally have to remind myself, more right foot, more right foot, just because old habits. So, yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah, the, you know, I, you definitely need to work out the things like your climb performance uh, difference. Uh, you know, get those numbers as best you can. And uh, same with glide performance, because it will be a little different with the with the uh, that big prop hanging up out there, either windmilling or, or at idle. So, you know, those things have to be kind of checked out. Uh, other than that, it's it's like Robbie was saying, you know, you just get used to the uh, the different rudder if you need it. Uh, you know, you, uh, you know, with mine, uh, I did not need a uh, rudder trim tab with my Aero V, but I, I do with the, uh, uh, with the Jabiru. So, you know, you have to find those things out. Um, uh, and uh, it, other than that, you know, there's not a whole lot, I don't think. Uh, you don't have to go through a full testing program, but just work out that the climb performance, the uh, descent performance, you know, the glide performance uh, more than anything, and then just get used to the feel of the airplane. And then uh, depending on the new systems that you may have in the airplane to support that new engine, um, there could be a lot of testing that's just related to improving the reliability of those new systems. So, Gary, I'm sure that in the testing you did when you did your engine swap, that was a big part of what you were accomplishing as well. Oh, sure. Yeah, I go back through and make sure everything works out. And, you know, just like we do with all of our service, all of our systems that we do, we change, we upgrade, we install. But, you know, nothing more than what you normally expect. Okay, well, um, that, I think, takes us through all the major considerations. Um, I'd like to just maybe just kind of boil this down to some, some final thoughts, some, some best practices or lessons learned. So maybe just think about what you want to offer up as the final closing advice. And, um, uh, Robbie, I guess I'll start with you. Um, final advice for me would be as long as you plan this out and you ask those with the knowledge who have gone before you, this isn't something that's impossible or, uh, you know, it's, it's nothing to be feared. Like I said, it's not for the faint of heart. You have to go into it understanding there's going to be more money and time involved than what you think. It's like building a plane. But yeah, go for it. This is, if you're doing it for the right reasons, as you brought up at the beginning, Jeff, this is a good thing. Okay. Yeah. Great. Mike. Uh, I agree with everything that, uh, Robbie said, uh, uh, the one other thing, and, and I kind of bring this up in almost every podcast where we talk about doing anything and that's, uh, utilize, you know, the friends you have, the people, the knowledgeable people, uh, not just for advice and, and, but, uh, like in, in Robert's case where he came over and he did my baffling for me, you know, it saved me a lot of time and, and gave me, uh, uh, what I consider extremely good, uh, cooling system. So, you know, anywhere you can get help, uh, get it. Uh, of course there's always the problem of too much help. If you get too many hands in there, something's <laughs> going to be forgotten, but, uh, 
but you know, if you're careful with it and and you know who you who you're dealing with, then uh, I would say just just go that way. It's it's a great thing to do, and you will certainly benefit if you're if you're upgrading, you know, to a different power uh, plant, you know, a higher power plant. You're gonna you're gonna really get reap some rewards from that. It's it's just a lot adds a lot more fun to the to the your flying. Yeah, the extra power really does wake a Sonics up, and. Um... It's hard having flown a Jabru. It's hard to go back and fly a lower powered Sonics. Yeah, Jeff, you I know. Just, oh, I just ahead, have to add. I, I am so glad I did this. Um, not only the extra performance, but just it it has turned into um, a sports car. It, it was a totally safe, adequate airplane before. There's nothing wrong with the Aero V. It is just a matter of this is an extra layer of pep. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. Okay, uh, John. Any final thoughts? I think anytime you're you're taking on a big change in a flying aircraft, it's going to take you longer than you anticipated. It's going to cost you more than you anticipated. But um, we all know that, and we kind of push that stuff off the back of our minds. But uh, you'll push through it, and I think you're going to have a you know, it's the, the, the journey, not the destination. Yeah. And I think that's uh, it's good to remind yourself that, you know, I, I did my homework. I made my decisions for reasons I think are solid and I'm comfortable with, and I'm not going to get frustrated at the little bumps along the road. I'm just, I'm going to enjoy it. I'm going to keep my eye on the prize and I'm going to get there because the rewards are going to be worth it. All right, Gary. Well, I think you guys are pretty much covered it all. I wish I had some extra pearls or wisdom for you, but. You guys are much more knowledgeable and, and have done a good job as usual tonight. Okay. Yeah, and I guess maybe the only thing that I'm just going to reiterate, and we talked about this at the beginning, is um, you know just, just really think about why you're doing what you're doing. Make sure that you're honest with yourself. Um, don't give in to internet peer pressure and make decisions that really might be appropriate for someone else but may not be appropriate for you. Uh, just know what you're getting into and go into it with your eyes open. And I got no issue. I, I hate to see people make decisions for reasons that they don't fully understand themselves or for the wrong reasons. Um, I, I don't have so much heartburn with the decisions people make. It's when they find themselves, you know, a decision was not intentionally made. It's just sort of happened to them. And that, that's usually a problem. It never ends well. So go into it with your eyes open, do your advanced planning and, and your homework and, uh, and know what you want to get out of it. Robbie, Mike, uh, thanks for coming back and, and talking through this. Um, I think that we're going to see more of this as the as the years go on and the fleet grows and changes hands. This is going to become a, a, a much more common occurrence where people are pulling off whatever. And eventually, you know, somebody's going to say, man, I bought John's B model YX and that, that Jabiru ran good for another thousand hours, but uh, I'm ready for that Jet A burn and turbine and I'm ready to upgrade it. John's like, yeah, not likely. <laughs> no, I'm going to put the, uh, I'm actually going to put the, uh, the subsonics engine on the back. Just to make it a hybrid. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Have to get in, a, addition, uh, in addition to the propeller. Oh yeah. It's a hybrid. Yeah. yeah. You're going to have to get a multi-engine you know, and a jet rating. <laughs> All right, guys. Well, thanks for uh, thanks for sticking it out and running through the list. Um, always a pleasure to talk to you guys. And um, 
Robbie, I think we have a little flyout coming up. Why don't you tell everybody about that, what it's going to be, when it's going to be, and all the particulars. Yeah, so we're doing a little bit of a Midwest Sonics to get together. I think it's September 28th. It's at Bolt Field, which is outside the Mode C Vale in the Chicago area. Um, it's close enough to Indiana that we're drawing people from Michigan, Indiana, I think even Ohio, certainly from Illinois, probably Wisconsin and Iowa. Um, it's going to be a blast. It's pretty much an all day thing. If anybody's got a subsonics, they're willing to buy you some fuel for the rest of us. If you fly in, I think you get to eat free. So thank you, Russ, Russ Pavlock for putting this together. It was an idea that we'd been talking about for a long time. And we just finally said, you know, we're just going to do this. So looking forward to it, Jeff, you, I'm hoping to see you there. Yeah, I plan to be there. Um, it, it's, you know, it's close to the Chicago area. And so for me, it's just a couple hours away. And um, uh, that's a good location. It'll pick up a good chunk of the whole Midwest. So, yeah, yeah. I look forward yep. to being there. Awesome. And I want to give a quick shout out to Mike Farley, who suggested this topic. He, he wrote in and said, hey, it'd be really great to uh, for you guys to talk about upgrading an engine, specifically to take off an Aero-V and put on a Jabru, because, um, well, I kind of bought a Jabru engine and I need some help putting it on. So, Mike, thanks for uh, the suggestion. It was a timely suggestion because, you know, we, we've all kind of gone through this, but we, we really needed to get some of these things out there. And I hope that you find this useful and helpful. And if we got anything wrong, we'll invite you back to tell us uh, what, what we should have said the first time around. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> All right, guys. Well, um, John, good luck on getting that thing, uh, I guess, finished up. Uh, I am sure that, you know, you say it'll be Christmas, but I'm sure you'll be in there grinding away at it, you know, out of sight from everybody and probably probably be flying it a lot sooner than Christmas. That's my prediction anyway. For all you know, it's already flying. <laughs> that, that's exactly the, I go into that, you know, thinking exactly like that. Go, you, you have your public persona and then you have the real deal that not everybody gets to see the real deal. <laughs> Gary, uh, I, I am sure I will see more videos coming from you. I think your, uh, your 360 camera has been kind of cool. So I look forward to seeing another good mountain flying video with your, uh, your 360 camera. Yeah. I hope we need that. Soon. I'm, I'm trying to. You know, as soon as I get a little bit more extra time, I'm trying to work on a boom system to, to mount this thing perhaps a little bit farther out. Some of the other guys have been doing the same thing, and then you've got kind of a, a gestalt view. It almost looks as if you've got someone in, in formation flight with you shooting back towards you, uh, which is I, really You know, cool. I had a boom on, on the Challenger, and it was simple, and it worked great. So, yeah, do it. I think it'll be great. I think, Gary, we just need to get a drone that can fly in formation with you. Well, that would be pretty cool, too, wouldn't it? <laughs> and at the speed with your Tundra tires, it shouldn't be hard to do. No, I knew you were coming up with that. Oh, I was <laughs> waiting. I was waiting. Yeah, that's okay. He's walking and I'm flying. That's all I can say. Hey, I'm flying my butt off right now, but not in my own airplane. Yeah, but in diapers. <laughs> uh, well, yeah, but Okay. Jeff, thanks for having me. I got to hop off here. So you guys have a good one. Okay. Thanks, right. Robbie. Bye bye. Thanks, Mike. Okay. Thank and, you. All right. And for everybody else, uh, you can visit us on the web at sonicsflight.com. You can find the show notes at sonicsflight.com slash six two. Subscribe to the show on iTunes. You can listen to it right off the webpage or use your favorite podcast app. And if you have an idea like Mike does about, uh, 
future topics that are going to be really, really cool and helpful, send us an email to feedback at sonicsflight.com. We'd love to hear what's on your mind, and especially if you can tee something up as easily as, as this. So we'd love to hear from you. So with that, um, guys, have, have a great flying weekend. Uh, John, 600 kilometers is now old hat, so I look forward to see a 800K flight and coming up on that 1,000, I'm sure. Yeah, unfortunately, we're at the end of the season, so I don't think it's going to happen. <laughs> All right, guys. Have a great weekend. We'll talk to you again soon. Thanks. All right, guys. Thanks. Bye. The views and opinions expressed on the Sonic Flight podcast are those of the hosts and guests alone and do not necessarily reflect the views of any individual, company, or organization mentioned on this program. Nothing presented on this podcast should be construed to be the official position or recommendation of anyone not directly associated with Sonic's Flight. Anything that sounds like advice should be carefully considered before being implemented. Remember, you are the pilot in command. So, John, uh, I saw your your sailplane flight you posted. That looked like a pretty cool afternoon. Oh, that was an epic flight. Yeah, that was pretty um, impressive. Yeah, we did a, a 600K um, cross-country in a sailplane, uh, five and a half hours. <clears throat> we, we were bumping against the Alpha airspace the entire time. Just an incredible flight. No, the, the real important uh, thing that well, I have, is, did you have a diaper or a condom catheter on this one? <laughs> okay, I had the diaper. And I my, figured you did. My instructor had the condom catheter, but the position of the pl- plane, we both complained we couldn't pee. When we came over <laughs> Pike's Peak, we were at five hours, and both were saying, we both got to pee, we got to get back down. And he goes, well, just pee. And I said, I can't. And he goes, I can't either. I just, it must be the position that we're in. Yeah. So we both landed dry and then went, ran to the bathroom. But, yes, I, I was wearing my Depends. And he was uh, wearing a condom catheter. Okay. Yeah, I was wondering how your, how your bladder and, and your butt held out. Oh, the butt? You know, I was, you know, had to wear a parachute the whole time. And I was actually quite amazed at how comfortable I was. Uh, it was, I, you know, I didn't have the same problem I have in the Sonics, which I get a SI joint problem where it kind of seizes up after about two hours and I have to get out and walk around. Didn't have any yeah. of that. Uh, hmm. Some of That's, that could have been all the get, turbulence because it, it was not a smooth flight. Yeah. It, and I assume in the, in that, plane it was a re- kind of reclining position too right yeah you're really laying down and we think both of us thought that the extremely reclined position was causing us our, our bladder uh, shyness yeah you didn't want to stink up the cockpit i'm sure <sighs> well i would have <laughs> i mean if i had to i would have <laughs> why the parachutes uh, it's pretty standard in these, uh, high performance sailplanes. Um, everybody wears them. Uh, you can get into some crap and well, you can break the wings off if you get into some really nasty stuff. I just thought maybe you heard about your flying techniques. My flying was <laughs> awesome. <laughs>
he he actually really complimented me my thermaling skill and my oh, smoothness so with the stick. So he was, you know, like, much like you yeah. did on our way back from uh, Oshkosh. You go, what? You really do? You can fly this thing really flat. Yeah. No, he was just hypoxic. I'm sure. <sighs> he probably was. We were on oxygen the entire time. Yeah. No, excellent flight, and, uh, and I'm the envy of the entire club because uh, all of all of the guys want to want to get that kind of opportunity to fly with a world class sailplane guy. Yeah, that would be nice. And a hundred thousand dollar, you know, plane with no engine. <laughs>